I would be unhappy with myself if I was wasting money on anything, and that includes living. So I uh, uh, get what I, uh, what I want from life and uh, move on. Chuck Feeney, the Irish-American philanthropist, died last week at the age of 92. Forbes magazine called him the James Bond of philanthropy because during his lifetime he quietly gave away almost all of his $8 billion fortune. You know, I'm a guy who's said that I could be happy at a, uh, with a grilled cheese and tomato sandwich. Feeney believed the old Irish saying, there's no pockets in a shroud, and so he pioneered the concept of giving while living and was eager to see how his money could benefit people and communities around the world. I was, you know, I was always thinking that, 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 that I, don't, uh, I don't need another million dollars. As a proud Irish-American, he donated over one billion euro to projects in the state. He funded all nine of Ireland's universities and the Northern Ireland peace process. He loved Ireland. He loved Ireland. And he, he became more and more uh, enamoured with Ireland as time went by. And he could see that his money was doing good things. He became Irish again, to be quite honest. He now has Irish, honorary Irish citizenship. That's Conor O'Cleary, journalist and author of Chuck Feeney's biography, The Billionaire Who Wasn't. Uh, Chuck Feeney is a very unique person. Uh, I got to know him when he was um, starting his giving after making his fortune. And I found him to be very taciturn, very hard to get a conversation going with Chuck Feeney, unless it's about something he's really interested in. Uh, and that would be entrepreneurship, uh, finances, uh, companies that he could help. Uh, but uh, he was the type of person that there would be six or seven people around a dinner table and everybody would be chatting, but he'd be sitting there quietly and he'd come in with something occasionally and it would always be very pertinent. Uh, he always paid the bill. He was very generous, even though he was very frugal himself. So what motivated Feeney to give away his vast fortune? And why did he never want any recognition for his staggeringly generous donations? He explained to me that if we revealed who was providing the funding, it would cease. I'm Bernice Harrison, and this is in the news from the Irish Times. Today... Chuck Feeney, the billionaire who gave his entire fortune away. Connor, you wrote The Billionaire Who Wasn't. That's the biography of Charles Feeney, known as Chuck Feeney. How did you come to write his biography and did he set any rules? Uh, that's quite an interesting story because uh, I got to know him when I was... Uh, International Business Editor for the Irish Times in New York. And he was introduced to me as a rather mysterious fellow who made a lot of money, I didn't know uh, in what, and who um, was interested in Ireland for some reason. And every time he was in New York, he travelled around the world all the time. Every time he was in New York, he would call me up and invite me to lunch. And I thought there were two reasons for that. One was because he was interested in Irish politics, and I knew about Irish politics. And he was interested in American politics and business, and that's what I was supposed to be expert in as well. So um, we would have lunch in PJ Clark's on Fifth Avenue. He always dined modestly, and he'd always have chicken and the second cheapest white wine. And we would chat about politics. But after a while, I realized that he was possibly doing due diligence on me because he had reached a point 
after giving in secrecy for many years in his philanthropy, that he thought his model should be made known to the world and that a book should be written. And after a while, uh, I realized that this was the case. So I said to him, Chuck, there should be a book written about you. And I don't know much about you, but I'd love to know more. And he said, well, that's, that's a very difficult thing for me. I, I'll think about that. And this went on for a while. And eventually I said, look, Chuck, I'll send you a fax and I'll spell out the conditions. And in the fax, I said, I would find a publisher. I wouldn't take any money. I would have control of the book. He'd have to give me access to his beneficiaries, to his family, to his former wife. And I thought, that's it. <laughs> so we met after that in PJ Clark's and we had a lunch without mentioning anything about the book. And as we're leaving, I wasn't going to say anymore. So we're leaving. I said to him on Third Avenue, do you want to think more about that? And he said, no, let's do it. And he walked away and he was as good as a word and everything I asked for. And I was able to travel with him around the world, speak to his, all his family, his beneficiaries. He gave them all carte blanche. They were all quite shocked because he had been leading a life of secrecy and uh, he had asked his beneficiaries, don't ever mention you got, got this money from me or from my foundation, Atlantic Philanthropies. And suddenly they were told, yeah, you can talk to this guy O'Cleary. He's going to come along. He's going to ask you a lot of questions, but it's okay. So that's what happened. And uh, it meant that as a biographer, he made life very easy for me. Fantastic. So Chuck Feeney was 92 when he died last week. Uh, so he lived a very long and I think we can say fulfilling life. And he really strove to make the world a, a better place. So let's go back to his upbringing. He was born in 1931 to modest blue collar Irish American parents. What can you tell me about his early years? Yeah, he was um, he was born just after the Great Depression and his family weren't uh, wealthy at all. They were blue collar, white collar. His father was an insurance collector and his mother was a nurse. What I can tell you about the influence of his parents and his neighborhood, I think it molded his character. First of all, it was a very positive uh, Irish-American neighborhood where people looked after each other. They worked in the police and the, and the, the fire services. And where was this, Gunnar? This was in, sorry, in, in Elizabeth, New Jersey. And he, um, he saw his mother and father doing really good things like there was a neighborhood, uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, which is motor neuron disease, whose walked with difficulty past the house every day to the bus stop. And his mother would go out and get in the car. They had one of the very few cars in the neighborhood, an old banger. And she would pretend to be going in the same direction, so she'd give him a lift. So that was, a, in a way, that was anonymous giving, you know, or she didn't boast about it. And I think that he, he mentioned that several times when I asked him, why did you feel inclined to do good things with your money? Now, he served in the Air Force after school and then on the GI Bill, he went to Cornell to study hotel management. Did he have any idea of what he wanted to do, what he wanted to become, or was that even on the table then? He had no idea. He, he considered after the army, he was invited to join the CIA and uh, he thought about it for a while and then declined. He decided to go to Cornell he was that sort of person. He was very, very interested in entrepreneurship. He had spent a lot of his youth trying to make money shoveling snow. And uh, he, he showed himself to be a very clever entrepreneur. He and Moose Foley went out to shovel snow in the winter. Moose was bigger than him. So he got Moose to shovel the snow and he collected the money. Oh, from the <laughs> clever. So that's real entrepreneurship. At Cornell, he studied hotel management. He, he was the first person in his family or in his neighborhood to go to university. He had no money. 
he had a wee bit of money left over from his GI scholarship. So he realized, again, entrepreneurship, that a lot of students were going hungry in the evenings because there was no McDonald's on the campus and uh, nowhere to go for a bite to eat. So he started making sandwiches. He went down to the local store. He had no money. He wrote a check for $100, bought up a lot of uh, sandwiches and butter and stuff, ham and uh, bologna, he called it. And he would sell the sandwiches and knowing that his check wouldn't bounce because he gave it on a Friday and it wouldn't go to the bank till the Monday and they'd have enough money then to cover it. And that's how he, he kept himself through four years at Cornell. And then how did he eventually make his vast fortune? Well, he left Cornell and went to Europe. This was post-war Europe. He got involved with a fellow Cornell student called Bob Miller. They began selling duty-free goods to uh, sailors on the US ships in the Mediterranean. They went from that to selling cars because they realized that they could buy cars and cheap in Europe and ship them to America without paying tax and make a profit. That went belly up. They extended themselves too much, but they had by this time secured the concession to run a duty-free operation in Hawaii. Now, the two things here, duty-free was unknown in those days. It was a huckster's corner of an airport with a wooden bench. Secondly, Japanese were beginning to travel for the first time after the war. They had been forbidden to travel for leisure because the country was rebuilding itself and needed to keep its cash reserved. And they were beginning to travel in the mid-1960s, and they had pent up money and desires for goods. And Chuck told me once that what they were selling at this wooden bench, you know, a kiosk, uh, suddenly Japanese travelers would be pushing over the bench to get out the Johnny Walker whiskey or whatever. And they were paying $20 maybe for a bottle of Johnny Walker whiskey in Japan, and here it was at $5. So they were benefiting, and uh, Chuck was raking it in, and he learned to speak Japanese. And as the company expanded and they built duty-free stores eventually all around the Pacific, they were making so much money after a few years that they had to have an armoured car to take the cash to the bank in the evenings. So obviously at that time he was making a lot of money. Now, before he moved into philanthropy and started to give away his fortune, you know, did he sort of live the high life, the rich and extravagant lifestyle? Yeah, he did. He moved, he lived in different places. He lived in the south of France for a while. He lived in Hong Kong. In Hong Kong, as his former wife told me, Chuck Feeney had two tuxedos. <laughs> they had parties. He, he, he was the sort of person who helped other people, uh, but he was also living the high life of a very wealthy business person. But he was growing very uneasy with that. And he, by this stage, he had five children. He moved to the south of France. And for a while, he continued the lifestyle, but he was furious once when a picture of him in tuxedo appeared in Paris Match. That was a symptom of how he was beginning to reassess his life. He didn't want that sort of publicity. He didn't. There were kidnappings going on those days of rich people's children, and he was very worried that his children might attract the attention of the kidnappers. There was a lot of it going on. So he decided to adopt a low profile. Uh, he drove a small car. He began to adopt a f the frugal lifestyle that was to mark his, his life for the rest, rest of his years. I'm not here to tell anybody what they should do with their money. If you make your money, you do what you want with it. 
it doesn't add anything to your life. Uh, uh, as I say, it uh, it may make uh, life a bit more more comfortable for you, but uh, I'm, I'm I'm not uncomfortable today. And so, how did it begin? When did he set up Atlantic Philanthropies? Well, he, as I mentioned, he was growing very uneasy with uh, with wealth, and he began to read the literature of wealth. His, his uh, lawyer Harvey Dale introduced him to Carnegie's essay on wealth, which had a huge influence on him. Carnegie said, "He who dies rich dies disgraced," and so uh, he took this very seriously. Chuck wasn't very communicative, uh, as I mentioned; he's not very good at conversation. So he would take a page out of a book with the essay on Carnegie's wealth, and he would hand it to people as an indication of what he was going to do. So he set up a foundation in Bermuda for tax reasons, and he began his giving, his serious giving from there, and it eventually become, became called Atlantic Philanthropies. But the big thing that he did, the biggest thing, and no philanthropist has ever done this at this level, he assigned his total fortune to Atlantic Philanthropies. In other words, he gave it away irrevocably. He gave away the mansions. He had mansions in the south of France and England and the United States. He gave away his businesses because he had developed other businesses. He gave away his 33% in duty-free, which was worth billions. Signed it all over and kept $5 million for himself, which, you know, in his terms is, is pocket money. And he was only 50 then? Yeah. yeah. Oof. And he his marriage was on the rocks and he gave $100 million to his, his wife, Diane, and he subsequently married his long-term secretary, Helga. And um, he uh, he then began traveling the world to f- try and find good things to do with the money. He, he arrived in Ireland. Ireland has benefited enormously from Chuck Finney's money in the peace process. He put money into that, into civil society, into the universities. But he also went to Vietnam. He went to Australia. He went to South Africa. And he was giving huge amounts of money to his old university, Cornell and Stanford. And all this was done anonymously. And his uh, instructions were, you know, if he walked into a university, nobody would know he was very rich. He would wear an old raincoat and a Hawaiian shirt. And he would ask the president of the university, what's your vision for the university? And the president wouldn't know who the hell this guy was. But eventually the, the checks started coming in. And eventually they realized that the story he told that he was one of a group of concerned Irish Americans was actually a fiction and it was Chuck Feeney. Connor, it struck me reading about him last week on the Cornell website. He gave, I think, over four decades, like a billion dollars to Cornell, one of the biggest benefactors of the university. Um, So they wrote an appreciation uh, on their website and there wasn't a mention of his Irish heritage. Was that important to him? It was so important. It was the most important thing to him. And I can tell you an anecdote that uh, proves that. He built Castle Troy Hotel uh, to service the, the university in Limerick. It became the most precious investment of his life. He loved it. He would go and sit in the lobby and watch people come in and out. He would always stay in the least uh, luxurious room and he would revisit that hotel. He'd bring all his schoolmates from Elizabeth, New Jersey to reunions at the hotel. He loved Ireland. He loved Ireland and he came more and more uh, enamoured with Ireland as time went by with his success and the peace process and he could see that his money was doing good things. He became Irish again. To be quite honest, he now has Irish honorary Irish citizenship. 
And how did he get involved in the Good Friday Agreement? How, how did that come about? Um, Neil O'Dowd, who ran a um, newspaper called The Irish uh, Voice in, in New York, with whom I was very friendly, he uh, it was he who introduced me to Chuck Feeney. He set up a group of Irish Americans who were concerned about ending the violence, and they became sort of unofficial envoys, visit, visiting Ireland, going to see the Taoiseach, going to see parties on both sides of the North. And he was asked, would he join that to to give it substance? And Chuck got fully engaged in that. He met Jerry Adams in a room in, in a house in Dublin. Uh, it was arranged with great secrecy. Uh, Neil O'Dowd told me once that he never saw, or never witnessed such a conversation that was so intense and intelligent about the way ahead for the peace process. And from that moment on, he realised that Adams was serious. He then decided that to get Sinn Féin onto the political route, that he would give them money to set up an office in Washington to show that diplomacy worked and that they could beat the English at that game, which they subsequently proved they did by getting Jerry Adams a visa uh, to visit the United States. And that success of the peace process had him in tears. You know, I, I saw him... Uh, at Stormont when the whole business was being celebrated. He was there with Ted Kennedy and Tony Blair and all the main actors and Paisley and McGuinness and he had tears in his eyes. I should remind you that he started his real interest in getting involved when he saw the Enniskillen bombing on television. This town houses a community still in shock, a community in disbelief at yesterday's tragedy, which will be added to a long list of others. But one question is on most people's minds. What can possibly be achieved by the murder of so many people, including pensioners and a young nurse? And his secretary told me that she watched him watching that and he was crying. And he turned and said to her, I must do something. So when Neil O'Dowd asked him to join this group, that was exactly what he needed. I'll continue my conversation with Conor O'Cleary after this short break. Do you feel that there was a sort of a strategy in terms of his donation? You know, did he have a sort of a sort of a vision that he would donate to certain things and not to others? Or how did that he, work? He loved bricks and mortar. He loved building things. Because of the education he got himself, he wanted kids to get education and universities, research centres became very important to him. And uh, in fact, this caused a bit of a problem with his foundation because he had a group of directors who were actually running the foundation. They, um, about 15 years ago, they decided under new leadership, that a new CEO, that they wanted to fund causes that didn't involve bricks and mortar, good causes. For example, healthcare in the United States. Chuck was always dubious about that, but he let the, 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 the board do that. But then they tried to stop him finding big new ventures that would cost tens or hundreds of, of millions. And uh, there was a, a very dark period in his life when the board refused to allow him to do what he did best and was doing brilliantly. And eventually he won the argument because the board, some members of the board saw that, you know, if the word got out that they were stopping Chuck Finney doing what he did best, it would be, you know, such a, a huge uh, scandal. So the board was stepped down, board members were changed, and he, almost in revenge, his first act 
after that was to give $350 million to Cornell to set up a Silicon Valley in New York. Uh, that was the biggest of the big bets that he loved to make. Now, he always tried to get matching donations from governments, which I think is kind of an interesting strategy. And I'm assuming that was the case with the Irish government. Why was that important to him and how did it work? Did he get the buy-in from the Irish governments, the succession well, of Irish well, governments? First of all, it gave him, it allowed him to spend more money because if he was going to fund, as he did in Australia, a, a biomedical centre, which was going to cost, say, $100 million, if he got a third of that from the state government, a third from the federal government, which he did, that meant he had he would only have to invest, you know, what, 30 million or something, and yet he would get the building constructed. What he did in Ireland was he, but Ireland had at this stage in the late 1990s, had only set aside 5 million for research at third level institutions, oh. which was derisory. Mm. Uh, Michal Martin tried to get it up to 50 million, but the finance wouldn't let him. He was Minister for Education at the time. So Chuck Feeney and his lawyer, they, they went to see Bertie O'Hearn. They said, look, we're prepared to put in 75 million. If you put up 75 million. And after a while, that was agreed. And Bertie was delighted because he got the credit for for, for all the, the good things that flowed from the 150 million fund. Uh, because at that time, Chuck wouldn't allow his, uh, his his name to be associated with it. Yeah, we're, we're going to get onto that because there's, you know, there's something nearly fairy tale I think, about the idea of a, you know, a secret billionaire going around the world and giving anonymously to people, to institutions. You know, the idea that he could be in a room and, and no one would know he was the benefactor. Why did he not want the recognition? Partly he's a bit of a Benedictine monk. You know, he's uh, he's very shy. His penchant, if that's the right word, for secrecy uh, came from, first of all, he had secret duties uh, monitoring military affairs in Japan, where he's based in Japan. He realized when the duty-free business was taking off that it was important that nobody knew how much money they were making. So they developed a culture of secrecy there for the sake of his family. He didn't want his family to be uh, involved. But also, he was simply modest. He didn't want to be thanked. He really sincerely didn't want to be um, going to black tie dinners where he'd be given you know, the freedom of uh, a city or something. In, in the United States, philanthropists get their honours by putting, having their names put in buildings. Chuck Feeney refused categorically to his name on any building. There's scores of buildings that he has funded around the world and in Ireland, and his name doesn't appear in any single one. Now, why? It's a question I've had to puzzle about myself and all these reasons accumulate. But basically, I think he simply didn't want to be thanked. I remember at this hospital in Da Nang, the director saying to him, uh, you know, I really want to thank you we were sitting around a table having a little lunch and Chuck stopped him and said, no, no, I have to thank you for doing good things with the money. And that's the way he saw it. Now, of course, he didn't want his identity to be revealed, but it was. How did that come about? came about because of the fact that um, to, to raise more money for his foundation, he, he decided to get the foundation to sell the shares that uh, he had owned in Duty Free. And that got him $1.6 billion. But it was such a big transaction at the time in New York, he sold them to Louis Vuitton, that it became a big story. And the New York Times was nosing around who was this secret philanthropist that they had been hearing about and 
eventually they went to the New York Times and said, look, we're going to out ourselves. We want you to know. We want you to know it's not mafia money. money money's not been laundered. We want you to know everything. Now, the New York Times splashed it and his anonymity was, was, was gone. And when was that? That would be about 1997. Now, we know that throughout his lifetime, he gave all, most of his $8 billion fortune away. He was also the father of five. Uh, he was married twice. The children, now obviously well into middle age, were from his first marriage. And he was still married to his second wife when he died last week. Do we know how his family felt about his decision to use his fortune in the way that he did? I've spoken to every member of the family. I asked them all that question. You know, how did you feel about it? And they had been brought up, you know, they had to do summer jobs in the summer. They they weren't allowed to be ostentatious with wealth. So it wasn't such a big deal for them. They they bought, to a certain extent, the argument that wealth destroys. They didn't want themselves to become entitled children. You know, Patrick, the son, became a school teacher. He's doing something else now in, in high tech. And the others... They lived fairly modest lifestyles. They didn't see any need for a lot of money. He did obviously look after them, you know, to a certain extent. And, uh, you know, they weren't left impoverished. And of course, their mother is, is a very wealthy person. So they weren't disinherited in the fact that their mother is a very wealthy person. So all that played into the fact that it didn't become an issue with them. So towards the end of his life, how was he living? He's been described by you, as living more like a Benedictine monk than a, a billionaire. How, how was he living? Well, he ended his giving about four years ago, wound down the foundation, closed it. Uh, by this time, he had retired to a small apartment, pays rent, and there's none of the trappings there of a man of great wealth. Uh, he doesn't own a car. So he had no stuff? He had no stuff. No, he lived very simply. And he, he ate out uh, local restaurants, one of which was run by former prostitutes uh, called Delancey Street. It's a, it's a big San Francisco thing where people are rehabilitated. And he loved going there. When I, we visited him there, my wife and I would visit him there. And that's where we'd go for lunch, more, more likely than not. Uh, and he had a f- small circle of close friends. At its height, uh, the foundation, Atlantic Philanthropies, had more than 300 employees of 10 global offices across seven time zones. Massive, massive organisation. In 2018, the Irish leg of Atlantic closed its doors and then the entire foundation closed up in 2020. Why did he decide then to wrap it up? Had the money run out or why, why was it then? Why was it 2020? Why was it 2018? There was a decision taken in, I think it was 2002, that the money should run out by 2016. The problem that they couldn't anticipate uh, very well was that the money was invested and the investments began to make big money because it was invested very well. So they were trying to run down the foundation, but the, the, the investments were kept making more and more money. But eventually they, they did wind it down and that was his wish. And uh, he was never happier than when when he wrote his last cheque. And how was that managed in a sense? Because you can imagine there would have been a lot of organisations, for example, in Ireland, that would be looking to Atlantic philanthropies for money. 
and then it's going to be wound down. How was that whole thing managed? Was there a cliff edge in funding? They or? actually brought in uh, experts uh, on running down a foundation because smaller foundations have been run down before to, to figure out how to do it. And what you do is uh, you lower expectations, you explain to your beneficiaries what you're doing. Chris Oxley, who ran his foundation and who was the most important person, I think, in Chuck's life. He would articulate Chuck's desires and he knew Chuck better than anybody. He saw that there was 800 million left. So what do you do with that? And with Chuck's um, cooperation with Chuck, they decided on that all that money should go to creating the Atlantic Fellows uh, around the world. So that research, people doing research into people, things like dementia and other disease and cancer could cooperate with each other in South Africa and um, in Dubai and the United States and Dublin and London. It's centered in Oxford and uh, there is an organization there that will see that this money is, is well spent. So the, the money is still being spent through that organization, but the foundation itself is gone. Chuck Feeney has no more role, nor has Chris Oxley. Well, you know, you talk about Carnegie being an inspiration, you know, and, and of course we're all aware, especially here in Ireland, the Carnegie Library is the name over the door. And as you say, there's no buildings named after Chuck Feeney. Though I think there are some maybe roads or paths in Limerick and universities. You're right. Cornell came up with this idea. They were really keen to honour Chuck Feeney. They came up with the idea of calling the main road through Cornell University campus Feeney Way. And this has been taken up by Limerick and by other universities. Limerick has renamed its main road through the campus Finney Way. And that's very clever because it's not something he funded. It's a play on words that rich people should follow the Finney Way and giving their money away. The Finney Way of life, live modestly, help people. So he, he agreed to that. And that, that, that's the only place you'll find his name. And in America, where philanthropy is really, really well developed, do you think he's changed the way people look at philanthropy? Not as much as you would like to think. He was approached by Bill Gates and Warren Buffett several years ago when they were getting involved in philanthropy themselves and they wanted to set up a giving pledge whereby they encouraged people of great wealth to sign the pledge to give away so much in their lifetime. As Chuck Finney said, to, to meet the needs of the world today and not leave it till tomorrow. And he eventually signed the giving pledge, even though he'd given he'd given all his money away, to encourage other philanthropists. And Bill Gates came to regard him as the the moral centre of that whole pledge. Warren Buffett met him once and came out of the meeting saying, "This guy's amazing. He wants his last check to bounce," you know, so, <laughs> which was a, a concept that was foreign to most people of great wealth. A lot of Philanthropists who signed the giving pledge, I suspect, did it uh, to look good. And of course, the lawyers that they employ would m make sure that there were problems about giving money away. You know? And uh, some people refused to, to sign the pledge. At the same time, there's no gain saying the fact that uh, it's a huge moral force in the world of philanthropy. One of the reasons he wanted me to write the book was to give an example to other philanthropists to show that, as he would put it, you get great joy out of giving, that giving while living is fun and that you shouldn't try and spread the money out over centuries. Give it now for the needs of the world today. Thanks very much, Connor. 
that's it for today. My thanks again to Conor O'Cleary, Irish Times contributor and author of The Billionaire Who Wasn't, How Chuck Feeney Made and Gave Away a Fortune Without Anyone Knowing. Interview audio of Chuck Feeney featured in this episode was from the RTE documentary The Secret Billionaire. This episode was produced by Suzanne Brennan. In the News will be back tomorrow, presented by Sara Kapolik, back from maternity leave to resume co-hosting duties on this podcast. And a warm welcome back to her from all the team. Thank you.